Hi, welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger. It is great to be with you. Today, we're going to be discussing the book, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. I have both authors with me today. Tim Muehlhoff is Professor of Communication at Biola University, a speaker and research consultant for the Center for Marriage and Relationships. And Richard Langer, who I understand goes by Rick, uh, is Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Talbot School of Theology and Director of the Office for the Integration of Faith and Learning at Biola University. Welcome to the show, men. Thanks so much for having us, Andy. Great to be here. Great to be with you. Now, I'm almost afraid to even ask this, but, but I'm going to anyways. Tell me, guys, what is the weather like today? And oh, Mar- Andy, don't, and don't go there. Andy, I have to. Don't do this to yourself. <laughs> Why? Why? Well, hey, Andy, we're having a cold snap. So I think it was about 62 when I got up this morning to sit outside in the backyard for breakfast. Listen, Rick, that's not all right, man. That's not a cold snap, okay? And to be honest, Andy, it's hard to hear you because of the jacuzzi I'm in right now. <laughs> you just can't. You're seeing me from the neck up. You don't want to. I'm in. This show's over. I'm done. I'm done. Get me out of Canada. I would leave if the borders weren't closed, but I'm man, I'm stuck. Uh, oddly enough, before the show, I was talking to to Tim, and apparently, you are a black belt. And of all the places in the world that you've got to go to get what confirmed as a black belt, it's Montreal, Montreal, Canada. I don't even know if that's even explainable. Well, first, I already have my black belt, but I'm going to be um, a level one instructor in Nifta Rossis's self-defense system. He's one of the top uh, martial arts instructors in the world. So, and he happens to be located in Montreal. So that's why I'm going. I have to snatch a pebble from his hand. <laughs> and uh, I, I have yet to do that. Uh, well, that's, a, that's amazing. Uh, you know what? I hope the border's open, not only for your sake, but for my own, my own sanity. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about this book with you guys. I, I can't think of a more relevant book with all that's going on both in the United States and Canada. I got two reads through of this this book, which is just great. And I'm reminded that I wrote an endorsement for this book. And uh, and then I was reminded of just how good this endorsement is, uh, <laughs> which I appreciate that you guys have me on the very front. I'm the first endorsement. I, I, I appreciate that. Andy, and uh, <laughs> uh, book sales have been lagging, though. So uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Thanks. But listen, I'm actually going to read what I wrote here because it is so good. The church is a family, and as with any family, there are bound to be disagreements. In a world of increasing theological relativism and shifting political correctness, there's plenty to get upset about. This much-needed book is a practical guide to picking your battles and developing the art of loving people with whom you disagree. Muehlhoff and Langer demonstrate that we can do both and must for the health of the church. Thank you. Yeah, that's an endorsement right there. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> right there. What an incredible book. I'm sure that when you guys began this project, you didn't realize how relevant this book would be. Or or am I wrong? Did you guys like like how did that develop? I, I am I am curious. Well, we 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 first wrote a book called Winston Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World, which by the way, you had me on your uh, program. Thank you so much. Well, and, and I, let me interrupt you real quick there, by the way, because that is a great book. And I, I just noticed that it won the 2018 Christianity Today Book uh, Award. 
in apologetics and evangelism. So congratulations on that, man. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And it was about how do we talk to non-Christians? Like, like in today's argument culture, how do we, in a winsome way, present the Christian perspective um, to non-Christians? And then uh, we discovered, Rick actually, he'll tell a story in a minute, uh, of being at a Christian conference where somebody challenged him and said, we're not ready to talk to non-Christians because we, we can't even talk to each other. So Rick, why don't you tell about that experience you had at that retreat? So I was at a retreat uh, talking about some stuff of winsome, uh, winsome persuasion and uh, chatting with a guy at lunchtime. <clears throat> and we'd been talking about some issues with, uh, you know, Christians communicating with the LGBTQ community and things like that. And uh, he was talking about the, you know, challenge of that for him. Um, but then he made an interesting comment. He said, Rick, this isn't a problem between me and the, in the non-Christian world. He says, this is the conversations that we have right here with the men in this men's retreat. And they had probably as wonderful church and they had this incredible transgenerational ministry. So I'm sitting here talking to men from age 20 to age 90 at this retreat. But he's saying, man, the divisions and differences we have sitting beside each other in the pew are just like they are in the rest of the world. And I thought, you know, it's really true. We're, we are at that moment. And that got Tim and I both thinking about the importance of saying, man, these differences, when, when you have them with a non-believer, you expect to have them. And so it's kind of like the, you know, the enemy, enemy on the other side of the battle lines. And he's in the other uniform and he has on the other side and you're lined up and you know that there's going to be the, the conflict. But when it's a person within the church, it feels like a spy. It's the person who's dressed up behind your enemy lines, enemy behind your lines, and it feels completely different. And that was the thing that made us say, "Man, we need to we need to speak into that issue because it's in many ways more problematic. Hopefully, less frequent in the sense of the number of controversies we may have, but boy, for the ones we do have, it becomes more volatile and more more difficult." Now, man, I got to tell you, I, I miss the days when we used to fight over drums and whether or not we should have Sunday school or not. Right. I yeah. mean, we're, we're way beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do want to just say for our listeners, because I know we have a number of pastors and people in ministry that listen, listen to the show. Uh, you two have skin in the game. You know, you're not just professors, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you both have pastored. You both have experienced church and division firsthand in your own ministries. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and I, really where this, you know, for Tim and I both, this is a, one of these books that takes you, you know, a year or two years or whatever to write, but in another sense, it takes about 40 years because of the conversations, all the things that go into that, that shape your vision on it, because it is, it's part and parcel of, of church, uh, church life. Yeah. And Andy, let me just say, I wish we were past the conversation about whether to have drums or not. We actually have an illustration in the book about a church that almost split over a smoke machine that was used in one of the services to give ambiance to, and some people saw that as worldliness. And what in the world are we doing converting worship into a, a rock concert? And the church almost split over it. So I wish we were past the worship <laughs> disagreements. Yes. Yeah. No, no, you're right. And as we're going to get into this today, what we're going to see is a divided church actually goes all the way back to the very beginning. This is something the Apostle Paul 
continually dealt with. We still deal with this. But I would say that this isn't a church issue. This is a human issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, if anyone's ever, if you've, if you've been married, if you are married, you understand uh, what winsome conviction looks like and what it means to disagree without dividing a marriage. Uh, because, I mean, there, there's a lot of similarities, isn't there? Yeah, and I know that you've sp- you guys have both spoken a lot to the topic of marriage. And, and, and it's, when I'm reading this, it just continually reminds me of that. I want to get into scripture, but before we do, I first want to ask you uh, about the Winsome Convi- Conviction Project, because clearly this book has struck a nerve and has actually developed into much more. So I hear this is a five-year project. Tell me about it. So a survey just came out last year that 98% of Americans, think about that, Andy, Americans don't agree on anything, but 98% of us say that incivility is a major issue in our country. 67% said, we think it's at crisis levels in our country. So America is reeling with incivility. And at a time when we need to talk to each other, we, we've lost the ability to talk about sexuality, immigration, um, whether to wear a mask. And so we had two donor couples come to us and say, we need to do something about this. So they have funded for five years a project housed at Biola University where we're working with churches, we're working with high schools, um, we're putting on events, and we are just trying to change the communication climate, both in the church and outside the church. If your listeners want to hear more about it, just go to winsomeconviction.com our website, and we have a podcast, Winsome Conviction Podcast, but go to the website and you will get the podcast, you'll get all of our resources. We're trying to really equip the church to have good conversations with each other and how to approach those outside the church. So winsomeconviction.com will kind of let you know what we're trying to do. And I want you to know that this isn't just a U.S. problem. I mean, as you guys know, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, and as we've gone through all this turmoil over the last number of years... I've been in constant communication with my family, but it, it did get to a place where, you know, I'm talking to my 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 sister and my mom and whatnot. And, and they were like, Andy, listen, things have gotten so bad here, you know, because I've been pretty removed from it. But they said, listen, things have gotten so bad here during during the election that they're like, we can't even talk to our own family. Uh, like nobody can talk to each other with because because it is that divided. It's it's divided within the culture, it's divided within families, it's divided within the church. Uh, and, and and you're right, it's gotten to that level of, of so heated that communication has completely broken down. And to illustrate this, just within my own context of ministry, I was actually brought in and, and asked to help mediate with an organization that tried to talk here in Canada on the subject of uh, LGBTQ issues. Uh, and in their attempt, it just blew up in their face, and and they and they were like seeking counsel, going, okay, how, what do we do? Uh, what do we do just to even try to get out of this mess? You know, because uh, because they really walked into it not realizing that it was as, as explosive as it is. I mean, and that really breaks my heart because I'm like, yes, we disagree on issues, but I mean, it has gotten so bad we can't even talk. I mean, we we can't even we can't you know we. We can't even disagree with each other at this point. So let's let's uh, let's get into this, uh, men, because I think it's important that we appreciate uh, that th- this is an issue that people have been dealing with. The church has been dealing with it a long time. 
for a long time. However, it does seem particularly bad right now. I mean, in your book, you bring up three issues. I mean, I could just just these three issues and people can begin to appreciate where we're at. When I when I say impeachment, pandemic, Black Lives Matter uh, protests, and here we go. Yeah, God, God decided to do the marketing for our book this year. So there, <laughs> <laughs> there, there you go. Now, when you wrote this book, though, did you have to go back into it? Because, I mean, COVID must have just been happening right before this thing was uh, was going to print. Yeah, I mean, literally, the, you know, the things that you're mentioning there in terms of writing the introduction, we literally went through three completely different drafts of the introduction because the raging controversy kept getting replaced. And we felt like would be outdated or forgotten. It'd be like complaining about the murder hornets that were like, oh, yeah, was, was there a murder hornet? I remember that. But, you know, there were just so many more controversies. And, and since that's happened, we've had an insurrection at the Capitol. And, you know, it just keeps going. So, yeah, it has been just a, a huge issue. And it's kind of unnerving how, how much deeper the divide seems to continue to get. Now, one thing you say in your book, though, that I thought was interesting, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. You say the cracks in our unity were already present. These challenging events simply brought them front and center. Yeah, yeah but Rick makes a great point in the book that the, the central challenge to the church that, the, that could really derail an early church was quarreling. So Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, hey, listen, guys, I hear there's, there are quarrels among you, and we need to address this. And then, you know, we know church leaders, early church leaders had quarrels with each other. So, uh, and again, add to this the spiritual element, right? We get asked all the time, what makes Christian conflict different? And one of our answers is, well, Christians have an adversary, that absolutely wants to destroy unity among Christians. So we can't be naive to the spiritual oppression part of church disagreements among Christians and things like that. Um, but we feel that quarreling has always been present in the church. So you're right. This isn't just a new phenomenon brought on by social media. We, we've seen, and by the way, we've seen this internationally as Rick and I travel. This is not an American problem. This is not a Canadian problem. Yeah, this I was actually going to bring yeah. that up. Yeah, this is, this is, you guys have seen that this is worldwide. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it really is part of our human, uh, human condition. And I think part of it is that we tend, we have an incredibly strong tendency when we disagree about an issue to um, be un able to imagine that the person on the other side has other things that we would share in common with them. The, the point of disagreement, particularly on things like LGBTQ issues within the church, uh, in America now, this has been true with political, do you support Trump or not support Trump, or things of this nature, it becomes the one issue that colors the entire person. And one of the big goals in the book is for us to, to say, that's the exact thing we can't allow to happen. We need to dig in to understand the full story, what we call thickening the conviction, so you understand where does this really come from, discovering both common ground and then not shying away from the real differences. Now, you guys call this argument culture, and I'm, I'm wondering, where do you, where do you, why do you think things have gotten so heated? Now, I, I mean, we've talked about worldview uh, wars, you know, for a while now. Uh, but we, but like I'd always seen that as outside the church. I hadn't really seen that as you know a war of worldviews happening actually even inside the church. But where where do you th how do you think we got to this point? Like as you guys have thought on this issue, 
So the term argument culture comes from Deborah Tannen. She's a Georgetown linguist. She wrote a phenomenal book called The Argument Culture. And in it, she points out that social media didn't cause the argument culture, but it's the perfect communication climate for it to thrive. So incivility today has really taken on an interesting technological sense through Facebook, Twitter, uh, everything you can think of. Um, so we had the U.S. president who used social media, which absolutely, if I was president, I would use it. But the way he used it kind of contributed to the argument culture. That's why the Winsome Conviction Project, we're going to do a whole conference on incivility and online communication. I'm shocked, Andy, how many Christians just want to abdicate social media. But I think it's the new public square. And we have got to find a way of redeeming and entering into social communication online. Now, here's what I would say, and I'm curious your reaction to this. It seems to me then that argument culture, if you will, has always been there in the human condition. It's just the technologies have become a megaphone to the issues that have always been there and has exasperated that issue. Would you agree with that? I so I would uh, y- yes I would agree that 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 bent of the of the argument it's the way we rally and organize you know we 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 argue our way to our tribe and then we cheer for our tribe and you know I think that current really is a, a human one I think one of the other things if I were to think back to the last thirty or forty years about what's happened to bring us to this point um, I mean we're all of an age that we can easily remember. Christian responses to postmodern thought. And I I don't think we always were very sophisticated in characterizing postmodern thought. We often characterized it as sort of college freshman relativism. Everybody had, you have your truth, I have my truth. And, you know, a, a sound version of postmodernism, if I could put it that way, wouldn't ever say it that way. They talk about communities of discourse and things like this. So anyhow, that's a bit of that backstory. But the side effect of that was that mindset in the popular culture really did become characterized by you have your truth, I have my truth. That isn't a sophisticated version, but it was the popular version. And once that happens, you've degenerated discourse about truth and objective discourse into power discourse, the power camps. Because you have your camp that has your version of truth, I have mine. There's no meeting on the field of discourse. There's only meeting on the field of battle. Because discourse, we have what, what's called incommensurable, uh, untranslatable communities of discourse. So we can't talk to each other. That's like a philosophical position about the postmodern condition. Well, in light of that, we end up in a world where we can only think in those sign of power battle terms. And I think that had been drifting for for 30 years it had been characteristic of the accusations about the left you know it was left-leaning people who would say that all the time well nowadays i'm looking at this and going well in in the in the last five years the right has adopted this sort of thing of look we have our truth we get it from fox news or fox news if it isn't right enough we will pick up the next further one and we will identify by these clusters and the idea that there's some kind of counterpiece of objective input that we could reason about can't even bring it to the table. So it has become power discourse, not truth discourse. On that note, Rick, I think it's so fascinating that one of the things I like to do just for pure amusement, although it is quite sad, is uh, you can go to Fox News and then you can travel over to CNN and then you can travel over to the BBC. And it's like you walked into different universes. I mean, that's how that's how polarized we have become. 
isn't it? Now, this brings up an important chapter in our book. Is your small group an echo chamber? Because what happens is we have these groups, even within a church, right? You can have an adult fellowship group. And all you do is talk about what you guys believe and how silly what the other people believe or unbiblical what the other people believe. So what happens is that starts to ferment. And then when you actually meet a person outside your group, you're, you're locked and loaded. You're like, how can you be an idiot and think that? Or how can you be so unbiblical? And can't you see what is right in front of you? And so we really feel like our small groups are starting to become part of the problem. And so we've got to find ways of including diverse perspectives within our small groups. Well, it's one of the things we talk a lot about the show on is helping people to realize that that media can be an incredible propagandistic tool if you're not if you're not careful because you might find yourself in an echo chamber. Uh, and it can even be more than just an echo chamber, by the way. I was speaking at a conference before the whole pandemic thing. Uh, took place. And I had a lady come up to me and show me an article. And it was it was quite negative towards Muslims. But I mean, it was so it, this article just looked fishy to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And and I said, you know, could you just send me that? I, I didn't have time to investigate it. And and she sent it to me. And I looked into it. And sure enough, when you dug deep enough, and it was amazing to me how deep I had to dig, that it was satirical news, uh, which which just creates this further problem when we throw fake news into this, right? It's just kind of an accelerant on this fire that's just feeding into that echo chamber, feeding into that tribalism, and no no surprise that we're going to have this strong disagreement that's leading to uh, separation. And I honestly, I think if it keeps going, it's going to be violence. I mean, we've already seen that at some level, yeah. but it could be even more. Uh, Rick, you were going to say something. I'm just going to make the point that in some ways what's happened is we've gone from a, a challenge of having differing worldviews to the challenge of having differing worlds. What a great point. That's the issue when you literally begin to talk to people and go, your perception, your belief in what the real world is no longer correlates with mine. And we're having this in a huge way right now in America with, you know, was the election stolen? Was there massive election fraud? And, uh, you know, I personally find it an exasperating thing to talk about. But I realize at some point, sincerely, we, we are not having a worldview conflict. We're having a world conflict with that. Well, this is something that I've even noticed, that conspiracy theories are just going crazy right now. And some people probably don't even realize that they're even caught up in a conspiracy theory because they've just bought it. It's just part of their worldview at this moment. Uh, but I, ha- I had a friend you know, that was bringing up uh, different, and he, he is a solid guy, uh, but but talking to me about these different things, I'm like, ah, brother, that sounds like a conspiracy theory to me. Uh, I, I would do a little more digging into that. Here, here's where I think this is kind of a, an interesting point on all of this, that what was it, 2016 or 2017, post-truth was wor- word of the year? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, are, are we not just dealing with the reality of that? We, we, we absolutely are, Andy. I mean, that is the thing that, to me, seems most disconcerting, is that we're, we're pretty familiar with these different perspectives on reality. But now that implies that there's a reality. So that isn't the question. We're in the post-truth, and with it, post-reality, you have your reality, you have your world, I have my reality, I have my world, which, unfortunately, isn't actually true. So yeah. then we end up with violence. 
You know, my class, when we were talking about this, they said, Andy, this sounds like that Spider-Man into the multiverse. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, that's exactly what we're dealing with here. You know, we're dealing with this, this, you know, multiverse of, of tribalism, if you will. Men, the, the question that, that is on everyone's mind and is on, like, what do we do in, in light of this? Now, one of the things I love about your book is your guys' book is rooted in scripture. And I think it's important for people to understand that quarreling, dealing with these sorts of issues is not a new idea. I mean, it is new in the sense for us, at least with how it has been exasperated, maybe through technology, not that technology is bad. I don't think it's bad. Like you're saying, Tim, I think it can be redeemed. I think it can be used for good, but we have to see our, our flaws. But look at what we're doing right now, Andy. This would be impossible in an age of COVID, but here we are, we're doing, you know, Biola didn't shut down. We all shifted to Zoom meetings. So yeah, absolutely. We think technology can be redeemed, but people need a game plan. They need help of, so we talk about negative and positive communication spirals, right? And you can look at a negative spiral and it picks up momentum, right? You use that tone of voice with me. I'll use this tone of voice. You put that in all caps. I'm going to put that in all caps. You make fun of my guy. I'm making fun of your guy. Andy, I think today it's a referendum on our faith. What, what does Peter say? If Peter were here, what would he say? He would say this. I do not want you to give an insult for an insult. All right, so let's, let's get that model out of the way. But I want you to bless the person instead of giving an insult. When I share that at conferences, Andy, people look at me like, have you lost your mind? <laughs> I, I am not giving a blessing. But in blessing, we mean, uh, we get the English word eulogize, to speak well of a person, even as we disagree with them. And that's what we try to do in the second half of the book, is how do you approach people with gentleness, respect, compassion, even as you disagree with them? Uh, The work of apologetics uh, right there, Uh, and the work of relationship. This This is what it's like to be in community with another person. It requires gentleness. It requires respect. And would you not, this is one of, I think, one of the keys personally, uh, especially when I talk with young people that are getting married and, you know, you do the pre-marriage counseling. As you guys know, I've been a pastor for many years. And and one of the things I talk about, the, the scriptures are rooted in the concept of being committed to community. And I love that the Bible is is pushing this idea for that to happen, it's going to require grace and it's going to require reconciliation, which sadly doesn't exist in our shame culture today, does it? No, no, that's uh, people talk about a cycle with um, eternal atonement, but never getting forgiveness. We continue to pay, but we never extend grace for the things that are gone. If you know, forgiving or forgetting is a sign of weakness and. And I actually understand that. But, you know, this whole conversation took place with the Holocaust, with, with a batch of people who are saying we should forgive. And Ellie Wiesel famously made the comment and says, no, I have no intent of forgiving because of the gravity of the wrong, which I want to be a little bit sympathetic towards in terms of, you know, acknowledging, yeah, it really has been like that. But the flip side of that is at the end of the day, what is your other option? to keep punishing, to keep fighting, to keep flogging. And that's the part that I'm saying, I don't think that option's available to us. And just like Tim said, you know, I understand why you want to be vengeful back. But at some point, we have to say, I need to exercise an honest, 
faith in God that he will actually deal with some of these things that are beyond my ability to deal with. I'm going to entrust myself to a faithful creator who judges all people justly. And I'm going to be faithful to his commands to me, and I'm going to leave it up to him to sort out, you know, my, my uh, you know, partner in the faith here who's going the other way. Now, one of the things that uh, I love that you guys point out in the book is that, yes, we deeply disagree, and we have, you know, serious challenges in today's culture, but it was very much so in biblical times as well. When you look at the distinction between Jew and Gentile and the sorts of disagreements that they had going on and how deep those disagreements were that Paul's speaking into, and I particularly love that you guys bring up uh, Romans chapter 14 as Paul is dealing with you know a quarreling church. And I want to talk about this as we kind of come in for a, a landing here because you're, there's so much that we could talk about in your book that I was like, okay, what what maybe could we just take a moment to hone in on. I want to just just take a look at this in Scripture. Let me just read some of this for our listeners. Uh, this is found in Romans chapter 14, as Paul is church, speaking to this church in Rome. He says, except that one whose uh, faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And this is this is a chapter in your guys' book, an important idea. Dis- what are disputable matters? One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? I thought, isn't that an interesting section yeah. here? It, you are you are a servant to the Lord, and you say, who are you to, to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, a servant stands or fall. They will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Let's just talk about this idea that Paul's getting at there, disputable matters. And in particular, you guys bring up four, sorry, three different aspects that Paul brings up with dealing with quarreling. Uh, But let's just start with this disputable matter. Yeah, I think if there's one thing I would love to restore to our kind of mental space as we think about these controversies, it's exactly that question that there is such a thing as a disputable matter. And the easiest way to think about this, you know, where does this lie, um, is imagine that there's certain things that are simply matters of taste or maybe matters of indifference. They're just historical accidents. If you want a great biblical example of this, it's, you know, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. <laughs> and Paul's saying, who cares, literally, who cares who preached the gospel to you? The point is that your faith resides in Jesus, okay? It doesn't matter who baptized you. It doesn't matter who preached to you. It doesn't matter who your teacher discipler was. It is about Jesus, not about them. So it would be bad to even care about that issue, to turn it into a matter of, I mean, you can be happy to celebrate, oh, Andy was so special because he's a guy who shared the gospel. Okay, that's all peachy. But let's don't turn that into a matter of conviction that we convert people to. The flip side of it is absolute convictions which would be things that you find in Scripture, you know, ideas like the deity of Christ, resurrection of Christ, the reality of the incarnation that Jesus really did become man. And these are the things that absolutely define the faith. And you know it's a matter of absolute conviction because we'll stand up in church and and recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of the heavens and the earth, and Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, 
was conceived and, and you realize, oh, these are our, our defining beliefs. And if you fail to have that belief, it's totally legitimate to say this person fails to be a Christian. Why? Because they deny the deity of Christ. Okay, great. The thing we're missing is this middle ground that you form what I would call personal convictions in. So it isn't the who cares because it's an area of conviction. It isn't the absolute because they'll differ by person. And the example that you're given here is in, in Romans uh, 14 is, is days and diets, roughly speaking. And the big mistake that we make about that is that we as modern, you know, North American Christians, Western Christians, we tend to hear that as, oh, yeah, that's one of those trivial things. And I'm like, dude, have you ever read the Gospels? What is the number one thing that they fight with Jesus about? Days and diets. Imagine being a split Jewish Gentile church in Rome in the first century. You think that Jews thought this was a matter of triviality? And Paul's own language in Romans 14 says, I want each one to be fully convinced in their own mind. He literally is using the language of conviction explicitly about these areas. But he's saying, as you so wonderfully read there, you don't have to convince your brother of this. I want you to be convinced in your own mind, and I want you to know that you're going to answer before Jesus on this matter. Oh, so that's that area in disputable matters we form personal convictions for the sake of our devotion to Christ. But we do not convert other people. We don't need to convert other people to this. So these three, then, that you bring up, the first one is distinguishing personal conviction from moral absolutes in matters of taste. The second is don't quarrel. And the third is be fully convinced in your own mind. Is, isn't this true of any argument that you have with somebody? Because I, I talk with young people about this quite a bit. Listen, you should be convinced in your own mind. You got your own opinions. So that means that having disagreements with people should actually be pretty normal, shouldn't it? Because you should have your own opinions and they have theirs. And there's going to be times that they're going to be in conflict. It seems to me that one of the important issues at play is is not whether or not you're quarreling, but how you're quarreling maybe is is a is a way that we could put this. Are you disagreeing with the gloves on, if you will, or the are the gloves clump coming off? Yeah. So Andy, we know in communication theory, there's two levels of communication, not one. There's the content level, without without a doubt, those are your uh, arguments, convictions, but there's the relational level. That's the amount of respect between two individuals, the amount of acknowledgement, and the amount of compassion. Now, you see this in the scripture all the time. Paul says, speak truth, content, do it in love, relational. Peter, and you know this, Andy, because of your great apologetics ministry, be ready to share the reason for the hope that is in you, content, do it with all gentleness and reverence. So we see this combination all over the place that you cannot just speak content, you must also have the relational level. I think the argument culture is a breakdown in the relational level. Don't, one of the areas where I see a breakdown, and you guys bring this up in your book, and I was actually, it was interesting because I was, I was reading your book. I'm like, oh man, it, this sounds like a false dilemma. And really by false dilemma, we're making a personal conviction into a moral absolute, right? Yeah. We create an either or. Now it's funny because this has been going on in the church for a long time with regards to the evolution debate. Oh. Uh, and, and I got swept into that as a young Christian. It was an either or. Either, you know, you are a Christian, which means you're against evolution, 
right? Or you're for evolution and you can't be a Christian. It's it's this this false dilemma, if you will, right? I tell you what, this this just wreaked havoc on my faith because if there was evidence for evolution, my faith went down, right? If there's evidence get and, and I felt like I was on you know a a faith roller coaster ride uh, until I realized that I had I had bought into these false dilemmas where. Uh, there was a conflict at play, and I was buying into it that that was unnecessary. And I could say more there, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts on, with regards to that? Yeah, I think one of the things we talk about is is the idea of weaponizing a belief. Mm. And an easy way to think about it, using the vocabulary we're just talking about, is you're taking a personal conviction and upgrading it to a matter of an absolute. So, for example, you might have a personal conviction about uh, gender roles in the church and whether women should or should not be elders or leaders or things like that. And uh, another person might have a different conviction. We're pretty familiar with that, with that controversy. Uh, and we might identify that as this is an area where we should be forming convictions, but we may indeed have different convictions about it. And I would like to argue, I don't know of any confessions of faith that include a position on egalitarian gender roles or, or you know, complementarian ones. But we upgrade that when we begin to think, well, where does that belief about gender roles come from? Well, I anchor that in my belief in the Trinity because, in effect, as the father submits to the son, I mean, as the son submits to the father, well, the husband is supposed to be the one to whom the wife submits. And so when you deny this sort of relationship within a marriage or within a church, you're denying something about the Trinity, too. And the Trinity is obviously this core issue about which we have the confessions. Well, the weirdness of that is that, okay, so I'm an egalitarian. And I say, oh, okay, let me drop anchor in my view of gender roles in the Trinity. All persons of the Trinity are equal, right? Ha ha, take that. <laughs> and, and so suddenly we've both weaponized our belief by upgrading it to the Trinity, but you can't imagine how the other person could do it. So you think I've got the Trinity going for me and they only have their personal choices about gender roles. And so we talk about the value of sort of tracing your conviction at mapping it because all of our convictions tend to move upwards to our absolute beliefs. And I think it's right and good that they should, but we need to remember that we've made the connection is different than saying we've made the equation. My gender roles belief is not identical to a Trinity belief. It may be derived from it, but it's not the same thing. Now, isn't this what we're ultimately saying? Because some people might take this as religious relativism, right? right? Where, where they would say, okay, then are we saying that everybody's right? Because, I mean, if I go back to the evolution argument, it's been a very freeing uh, experience for me to realize that this was a false dilemma and that, I can respect my friend who's a young earth creationist, and I can uh, you know, respect my friend that's an intelligent design. I think there's some people that would go, now, what exactly are you saying? Are you saying that they're all right? Or are we saying that one of them's right, the others are wrong? I just don't know who it is. How would you guys respond? So, Andy, we actually have, uh, in one of our chapters, we use this as a test case. Um, there's a great group called the Colossian Forum that brought together one of the leading young earth uh, advocates, and they brought together one of the leading theistic evolution experts for a weekend. Think about this. They were going to spend a weekend together, and it almost didn't happen, Andy, because at dinner the first night, one of the guys said to the other guy, dude, you're pseudoscience. You are just not even, you're pseudo. 
And it ended right there. And the one guy walked away and said, this is exactly what I thought was going to happen. This, this is the weekend, right? Well, the other guy was convicted by the Holy Spirit that night and in the morning publicly apologized and said, you know what? This guy's a good scientist. I, I, I was wrong to say that. Now, let me just say, that's not relativism. That's winsome conviction, because I do think when we get to heaven, the debate's going to be settled, right? So, but there are really good people on both sides of this issue when it comes to theistic evolution. We need to respect that. And one thing I'd add, so I think the theistic evolution, you know, creation question is a classic example, one that just the way you said, Andy, that we, we don't have the data, not, and I think more than even the data, I'm saying, I don't think we have the mind to wrap our heads around how creation really happens. I can't, I, you know, calling something into being from nothing, I shut down at that point. There's some, in other words, you're saying there's some humility needed a, here. A little, a you, little humility <laughs> could go a long way when we're talking about creating the entire universe, okay? I'm just saying it's probably, yeah. So, you know, those are one, one area where you to say, yeah, we have room for differing agreements and personal convictions. A second thing is actually the pulsing of days and diets. One of the interesting things with, with some things Paul talked about in Romans 14 is it's actually, I think, possible for both people to be right, in effect, if they're answering the question, how should I exercise, exercise and practice my devotion to Jesus? How should I express it? And one says, you know, I am going to honor particular days. I'm not going to eat certain things and all that. Another person goes ahead and eats and doesn't eat. And as, as Paul says, look, the concern is that each of you can stand before Jesus with a good conscience and say, this is what I believe I should do. And Jesus will look at you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But Andy, can I jump in right here? Because this is an important point. So it's called the heretic and the fool. It's about this weekend conversation. Now, Andy, both of them think you are doing incredible damage to the church, right? The one guy thinks, the young earth guy thinks, you are bringing Genesis into question, the way we interpret Genesis if you're getting theistic evolution. So then people start to lose confidence in all of scripture. The other guy says, you are killing our reputation among scientists if you're holding to a young earth, because everybody knows that's just flat out not the case, right? So how then do you live in tension with each other? I don't just disagree with you. I actually think you're doing damage to the church. So now both of them are going to have to live in this tension. We both love Jesus. We both, we think we're doing what's right. This is where the scripture takes us. Can we live in harmony with each other, even though I think you're damaging the church, man, that's where our faith gets tested right there. Doesn't this bring us back, though, to what Paul says here when he says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? We each are a servant of the Lord. And in your book, this is one of the things that you bring up is that in the end of the day, we are not the judge, are we? I think there's a lot of those issues where you you do at some point have to have, have that. And I think th the one thing I wouldn't say is that it's wrong to have discussions with each other about areas of personal convictions because personal convictions can be better and worse. They may be helping, they may be not helping. And you learn things from them, you get insights. I've had an ongoing discussion with some friends who have a much different view of issues about social justice and some of these kinds of things. And I have learned a lot. I haven't changed my convictions about the matter at all. Um, so yeah, it isn't to say this is off limits. The goal at some point is to do what I call achieving disagreement. If you were to articulate what a, a gay or lesbian person believes, what would you say? 
And when you said it, would that person say, yes, that's exactly what I think? Or would they look at you and shake your heads and say, you have no idea what you're talking about? And likewise, the gay community often views Christians say, oh, I know exactly what you guys think. And I go, do you? Could you state my position in a way I'd not? And I said, yeah, you got it right. And I think usually we don't. And I'm like, look, if you can't say my position, then you don't know if you agree with it or not. Yeah, this is such a good point. In my time doing apologetics, what I have found is when I can articulate somebody's view as well or better than they can, there is an immediate connection and conversation really does flow because they're like, this, this person gets me. Let me say one thing we've discovered with the Winston Conviction Project, okay? So if you and I have a disagreement, you and Andy, right? And I, I represent your perspective in a way that's charitable and close. You and I have a connection. It's the other Christian listening who grabs me and says, what are you doing giving credence to that perspective? What in the world are you doing um, uh, giving that somewhat validity? We equate acknowledgement with condoning. And that is killing us today because then you can never acknowledge another person's viewpoint. So that's what we're finding out in year one of the Winston Conviction Project is, Andy, people are like, hey, don't give a charitable read to them because then you're going to encourage them. That's what we're wrestling with in year one of the project. So in other words, people that are entrenched in their view and not not willing to give any ground, uh, it, which is concerning, isn't it? That like. This can't lead to a good place if we remain entrenched. Okay, but when you ask a person not to be entrenched, this is what we get. So you're, act, you're telling me to go against God's word. You're telling me to go against the Holy Spirit. So, and I will not do that. I will not go against God's word. And you're like, now, is it conceivable that another person is interpreting God's word in a different way? And that that's kind of a mystery of theology. And they're like, nope. That person's wrong, we're right, end of story. And we're like, okay, business is really good for the Winsome Conviction Project. (laughs) (laughs) So it comes back again to this personal conviction versus moral absolute, and have I conflated those two? And really, you guys are in the thick of that, trying to pull these two apart and help to help people to appreciate where we're at here. I mean, it is sad because the truth is, I mean, we've all seen relationships divorce because of this. It constantly brings me back to the idea of Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, that at its core is is our relationship with the Lord, and from there, our relationship with one another. And I'm sure you both would agree, and as I was reading your book, I was reminded that identity, our identity in Christ, isn't it just absolutely foundational to this entire project of, of who we are and how we're going to respond to God and how we're going to respond to one another? Uh, I think it's so important that Christ says, you'll know who my disciples are. How? Because they love one another. Because they love one another. I pray for unity in the church. I pray that people uh, will grab hold of this book and the work that you guys are doing, that we would put it into practice. Uh, Guys, as we close here, where would you send people that want to know more? Where can they pick pick up your book and and where can they learn more about uh, the project that you guys got going on? Well, the clearinghouse really would be winsomeconviction.com. You can see both of our books, which you can get on Amazon through University Press. Uh, Listen to our podcast. You can find it on Spotify. It's called the Winsome Conviction Podcast. And Andy, we try to practice what we're talking about. We bring on people that we disagree with. 
we bring on people that would come from a different perspective and we just try to show what it's like to winsomely engage them. So it's called the Winsome Conviction Podcast. But if you go to winsomeconviction.com, you'll kind of see everything we're trying to do. Love it. Hey guys, thank you for your time today. And uh, I just, I, pr- I pray God's blessing over the work that you're doing. Uh, I really do believe that it, this is important work uh, in the church today. Uh, listen, I, I actually think about this as well with us coming out of this pandemic, you know, and, and what the world's going to look like as we start meeting again. Uh, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would seek forgiveness, grace, and reconciliation. Amen. 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 Have a great day, guys. Thanks a lot, Andy. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's podcast as Andy sat down with Rick Langer and Tim Muehlhoff as they spoke about their new book, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. We also want to take a moment to recognize Andy Steiger along with Sherry Hebert for their collaborative work on Reclaimed. Reclaimed was just recently recognized by Zondervan as one of their outreach resources of the year under evangelism and apologetics. If you're interested in purchasing the book, please visit apologeticscanada.com and visit our store. As always, love God and love people.